too great. That's that's what I decided was the, the correct answer. And so uh, this is uh, not only a work of historical scholarship, but also a work of love. Uh, and I, and, it, and one can tell by reading it. Uh, let's let's talk about his life. And we've got barely enough time to sort of skim across it. But then again, that's why the book exists, so folks can get a copy of it. It's recently published in, in the month of May by UNC Press, and that means it will have good distribution, and one can find it at the usual places, i.e. your friendly bookstore or Amazon or Barnes & Noble or wherever, unless I'm mistaken. And, uh, Absolutely. Uh, and the UNC Press uh, website also carries it. Right. Okay. Aaron McDuffie Moore. He was uh, a native North Carolinian. He was born, I believe, in Columbus County. Um, he, as far as I know, was never a slave. Uh, that's a question that one a person might ask, having been born in, before the Civil War ended. Uh, and I, I don't believe many members of his family were. They were free blacks who owned their own land. Did I get that right? That is correct. And, and that's a, a part of history that most people don't know as much about. Um, and is a tremendous uh, legacy, um, but also, I think, a, a real statement of uh, what becomes possible when you remove the tremendous trauma of slavery from a few generations of a family, how much more able they are to move forward in a certain way, although many did anyway, but they carry less of that trauma um, but also, once again, feel tremendous responsibility for those who did suffer that trauma. And so many free, freedmen or uh, free blacks um, did go into leadership positions uh, for that reason because of understanding the legacy of slavery, although not experiencing it, um, made them feel quite responsible uh, to be part of things like education and, uh, in his case, health care. Um, our family, uh, on uh, there's actually a tremendous amount of us still around, so much so that they've incorporated. It's the Benjamin Edith Spalding, uh, uh, Benjamin and Edith Spalding Descendants Association, um, going on more than a thousand strong, and uh, they to this day have a biannual reunion. Although this year with COVID, that's canceled, and uh, uh, we we support each other in, in a million different ways. But I received so much support for this book along the way, namely from their historian, Mick Alexander. Uh, so it's a, it's a very strong family tree to this day. Um, but it, it really began also with a tremendous amount of Native American roots. Uh, we have deeds on land going back, in some cases, that predate the nation, um, but certainly on record from 1822 on in this particular family. And there were very strong family relationships. I know that's one thing I learned from the book. And he seems to have made frequently throughout his life, though he was very successful in his life uh, and was dedicated to the city of Durham, he made a lot of trips back to Columbus County and, and was very interested in, in what was going on there. Mm, truly. Lots of folks don't know where the, the term Tar Heel comes from, but it comes from the turpentine uh, business. Uh, and the longleaf pine uh, tar, um, you know, the work that involved that, um, it became applied to, to North Carolinians uh, when they were, uh, you know, stubborn and stood up for themselves. They're, they would stick, their, their heels would stick to the ground, and they, they'd have tar heels that stick and stand up for themselves. It was a very um, independent and hard uh, uh, 
kind of highly skilled kind of labor. And uh, it sustained many, many African-American families because that skilled labor was, was quite sought after. And when you could put together a community that could then uh, get into what was called the naval stores business um, and, and profit from the many versions of turpentine um, that were so required up until and through the war um, for uh, armies to subsist on and others, it was definitely a, a way that they could create a community that was self-sustaining, Al although there were many other crops, turpentine was certainly figured in, in among the highest. Well, uh, your great-great-grandfather was, uh, I, he seems to me, must have been a quiet, uh, not to say reserved man. Uh, he does mm -hmm. seem to have been constantly in motion, and when he was young, he alternated working and going to school and went to some uh, uh, academies. I think one was in Lumberton, and, I, and I, the assumption has to be that this was an academy for for uh, black students. And this is, you know, I've been in North Carolina all my life and knew a fair amount of North Carolina history, but was not aware of, of this kind of situation. So this something one can still learn at this point. But he, he attended, uh, I think, an academy in Fayetteville and one in Lumberton. But what I'm trying to do right now is to get him to Raleigh. Uh, yeah, and, uh, well, and, uh, he was to, uh, able to get sorry. through both of those. It was, yeah, there was a great gap between actually um, attending both of those schools and getting him to Raleigh because he was called back to the farm for four more years, and I think that's really a, a, a testament to his fortitude and his uh, tremendous self-reserve. Um, his resilience was that he was able to halt his schooling um, and then continue it while working very hard on the farm for four more years before he was able to continue to college at Shaw in Raleigh. Um, and uh, shortly after arriving, became part of the second class to enter Leonard Medical School. Now, tell me something that I meant to do a little research on and didn't, but the Leonard Medical School, who is, is, who is that name for? Is that something that is a separate entity that was integrated into Shaw, or who was Leonard, so to speak? It was a it was a separate entity that was integrated into Shaw. Um, Martin Tupper was uh, at that time uh, its biggest champion. Uh, Leonard was actually uh, a relative. Uh, I believe it was his brother-in-law who donated the initial land to, for Leonard. Um, so it was it was named for him um, because of that. I believe it was a land initial land uh, buy. Although Martin Tupper himself spent most of his own savings to achieve uh, the land that he was able to build Shaw itself on. But Leonard Medical School is really a particular, um, um, I would say, avocation for Martin Tupper because he had been a chaplain in uh, the Civil War. And many times chaplains were the only persons called into um, uh, the areas where either the slaves who had freed themselves and were following the Union Army or those who were uh, indentured into servitude in, in the Confederate Army, often chaplains were the only ones who were able to administer to them at all. There were really no uh, medics. And so he really became very uh, galvanized by that and, and very much in, in favor of uh, African-Americans learning to care for themselves and uh, learning medicine in particular. We're talking with uh, Blake Hill Sayer about her great-great-grandfather, because she has written a book, a biography of Aaron McDuffie Moore, whose name would, was identified ultimately with the uh, 
building of Durham and uplifting of Durham, and uh, uh, he devoted his career career to uh, a life as a physician in Durham. And we've we've got him to Raleigh now. We've got him to Shaw University, and he's a member of what I think was either the second or third class of the uh, Leonard Medical School at Shaw University, and a class, class uh, a. Uh, curriculum that was supposed to take four years, he completed it three years. That's why I've decided he was in constant uh, motion. But uh, that's where we are right now, and we're going to pause and take a break and come back, and Blake is going to take us from there into uh, becoming a physician, choosing Durham as a place to be a physician, making a feint at politics, and then uh, uh, taking uh, a different uh, direction in his contribution to the life of Durham. All that's coming up right after this. Wall Street. We're giving you the background to the story because there's a new book about him written by Blake Hill Saya. And she's on the phone with us from Los Angeles tonight where she is uh, a musician and uh, is following her career there, although she is connected uh, lifelong with Durham. Uh, Dr. Moore, uh, the subject of the biography, is her great great grandfather. And we're getting the story of his life. Uh, Blake, uh, Dr. Moore, graduated in three years and chose to go to Durham to practice. Was he the first black or the first physician, period, in Durham? He was certainly the the first black physician. I think that there were already uh, white physicians, but he was the first black physician in Durham, Haytai. Haytai was uh, the black community of Durham that uh, many black communities at this time were, were nicknamed Haiti as a um, reference to the free state of Haiti, um, which had recently found its freedom. So it was a, a right, it was homage to Haiti. Exactly. And uh, he uh, sort of had to start from scratch. Uh, one of the things that I, oh, I just wanted to note is that he had to be understood as not being a, quote, root doctor. Yeah, and this was a big challenge, and I think there's there's some echoes today. Um, there there has been historic mistrust of medicine in the black community, um, and this was no different. Uh, unfortunately, um, many medical doctors were used and weaponized against slaves to either keep them working or to divide their families or to, um, in some cases, uh, inflict uh, research practices. Uh, so doctors came with a lot of consternation. Um, and then there were also, you know, this was a time in which medicine itself was, uh, you know, just finding out that there were germs and just finding out that uh, um, sanitation was important. Uh, Joseph Lister had only just done the first sanitized surgery. So there were many, many things happening in medicine itself. It was becoming less about leeches and, and diuretics and uh, things like opium and more about science. And so there was a lot of things, there were a lot of things changing, but in, in particular the black community, it was a kind of transfer from uh, old uh, style, more uh, primitive medicine practices that they were more, that they trusted more and uh, into more modern practices. And Dr. Moore really had to work very hard to get that trust. Um, and that was done kind of in a combination between his work with the White Rock, White Rock Baptist Church, which became his spiritual home in Durham, and also just building up uh, trust and relationships. Uh, he would not just go and cure an ill 
he would go and also bring firewood and also bring uh, good food and clean water if he could and and uh, help nourish a whole family instead of just cure an ill. And that, that gave him quite a reputation in a short period of time that, that uh, lent more trust so that he could build then on that. His um, work led to him making a, a foray, a brief foray into politics, and it happened to be, I think, at one of the worst possible times because this was one of those turning points when what was left of the hopes of Reconstruction sort of went down the drain, uh, and the, by 1900, uh, uh, blacks in North Carolina had been pretty much disenfranchised. Uh, uh, can we can we join, take up with that and talk a little bit about that in Wilmington? Of course, yes. He was encouraged initially when he first got to Durham to run for county coroner, which was a, a position that was open. Um, that you know some viewed as distasteful, uh, and so they thought maybe he could win and then uh, have some political position. There were at this time um, numerous uh, what was called the Radical Republican Party, which was the party of Lincoln, uh, and uh, there were numerous Radical Republicans and uh, people in the Black community who were becoming prominent. One of whom became his uh, father-in-law. Uh, uh, his last name is Dancy, and uh, he he and others like him were advocating for building up uh, an infrastructure in politics that would help black to to you know see for themselves and fend for themselves with things like sheriffs and judges and uh, you know, what we even see today um, quite a lot of uh, institutionalized racism that we're trying to push back against. Uh, being county coroner would have given him, you know, numerous duties that that might have put him in position to, for for instance, prosecute crime, help prosecute crimes against uh, white defendants. This was not held in high regard, and he received a massive backlash that gave him a distaste for politics, uh, overt politics anyway, in terms of running for office. For the rest of his career, he really decided that he was going to change the system from within and by providing the services to his people that, that they needed um, through diplomacy, but not through politics directly. Would you have said that he was a follower or an adherent to, in any way, the line that Booker T. Washington took in, in uh, appealing for the Negro to make a, a better position in society, the compromise and so on? Yeah, the Atlanta Compromise. You know, I'm really glad you asked this because it, it, he was, of course, an associate. In fact, his, his best friend and, and entrepreneurial cohort, um, uh, John Merrick, was closer to Booker T. Washington than he himself was. Um, I think Dr. Moore was very squarely uh, between what became kind of the W.B. Du Bois uh, argument, which was, you know, um, African-American people have souls and and have uh, desires more than being uh, just useful cogs in the wheel of citizenry. They don't need to go and learn the lower trades. They are perfectly capable of taking on, you know, everything that Harvard might offer, everything that Oxford might offer, um, and reaching for professions like doctors and lawyers and and judges. Um, and Blake, but, uh, Blake, can we... Yeah. Can we stop you just for a second because it's 9.30, sure. time for us to check the news, but we'll be we're back right after this, okay? Kearney, live and in real time, WPTF, along with Blake Hill-Saya, 
who is the author of a book about her great-great-grandfather, a man that not much is known about, uh, but will, that will not be the case after this book is uh, had wide circulation, Aaron McDuffie Moore, uh, a prominent black physician in Durham, and one of the founders of the North Carolina Mutual Life Insurance Company, which at one time was the largest black-owned business in the United States. I'm, I'm right about that, am I not, Blake? Absolutely. Pardon me? Absolutely. Absolutely. But we don't need to jump that far ahead. But we've got we've got uh, Dr. Moore to the point that he's decided to work inside the system and not go out and uh, be a victim of the uh, political system, which had been uh, led to a disenfranchisement of most blacks, particularly in North Carolina. Uh and work within the system. And from this point on, you really have got a, a list of about seven or eight things that he was very prominent in, and you could just go da, 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 right down the list of those things, Absolutely. all the things which led to the uplifting of the black community in Durham and the period that politics was uh, was no way that people could go. We were talking about Booker T. Washington and W.B. Du Bois when we left, and I will let you decide whether you want to go back to that or or take off from here with, with Dr. Moore's career? Sure. I will just basically finish that point by saying that Booker T. Washington was very much a, mom, uh, a man of his time, and I think W.B. Du Bois was a man before his time, and I think Dr. Moore definitely gravitated, certainly uh, uh, at the end of his life, but certainly also at the center of his uh, potential when he was beginning to form all of these organizations towards the W.B. Du Bois idea of the fact that, you know, uh, a, a meaningful life is one that is not only uh, one that has work, but also one that has uh, the ability to create a soul in, and to nurture the soul of a person, that culture matters, that legacy matters, that our stories matter, and that things like what he was able to help form in Durham's Haiti. Uh, not only a, a insurance company, a hospital, a pharmacy, a Shakespeare club, an orchestra, a library, a building and loan uh, for a short-lived hosiery mill. Um, so all of these, as, as you can see, all of these are a natural progression of when you're thinking of a whole person, not a person that fits like a cog into a system, not how can the, at the time, how can the Negroes serve America, but how can America serve the Negro? And and uh, that was very much his way of thinking of it. How do I not only extend people's life expectancy, excuse me, but how do I also make that life expectancy a rich uh, uh, life that is filled with opportunities to develop character, to have hope, to to express themselves in, in various artistic ways and also to contribute to the legacy of future generations having that kind of uplift, that it was more than a job that people needed. People needed a life, and people needed a, a whole self, and uh, he was very concerned with that. I think one of the, first, the area that he first, along with associates uh, in Durham, that he ventured into in, ter in terms of entrepreneurship was... Uh, founding uh, one or two drug companies, the Durham Drug Company, I think there was one other one, but things connected with the with the role of a physician that he already he already uh, had taken on. And 
and you make the point in the book that whatever he was doing uh, in terms of developing uh, companies and entrepreneurship, he continued to be the doctor that he was supposed to be. Absolutely, and he was always he was always in practice. He was a superintendent of his hospital until just a few years before he died. Uh, when John Merrick died, he did take over the presidency of the mutual, um, which wore him out pretty good. But uh, but he was always a superintendent of that hospital. And my great grandmother describes him as barely living at home. Home was where he ate and saw his family and and changed clothes. And then he was back in that hospital. So I think he, he said at one place that his family had to go to church to see him. Yes, and the church. <laughs> you had to go to the hospital or to the church to catch right. to catch Doctor Moore, or or a walking between, which many people did. Many people would walk with him along uh, between the house and church and the hospital to, to meet with well, him. Well, I think one of the most impressive things to me, uh, of course, I've known about the North Carolina Mutual Life Insurance Company, and that wasn't, of course, the first name that it had. And in fact, it it went through two incorporations. But that is one of the the most fascinating things to me in that the company basically, uh, I think, had been formulated and had been incorporated but wasn't doing all that well. And he and Mr. Merrick uh, sort of took things over and built it from there. And they invited C.C. Spaulding, who became one of the most famous people identified with that company. I think he was a nephew or something, if I remember correctly. Tell us the story of yeah, that. Yeah. yeah, he was a nephew. Um, Dr. Moore regularly went back to Columbus County as, as uh, many who, who left there and made good would go back and visit the schools, and everybody always knew who the, who the promising students were. Um, his house was full of students uh, from the time that his daughters went to school themselves. Those rooms were never empty. They were always full of somebody he was helping to uh, get a job or their education, um, nurses, uh, you know, grade school kids, all the whole nine yards. He was always always uh, invested in the education of, of uh, his, not only his family, but anybody who, who needed him. So Cece Spalding was, was no different. He came and finished his education, uh, got a job in the area, and then uh, when they needed the first employee of North Carolina Mutual, when they bought it back themselves from the initial investors, um, they hired him as the first, first employee. And then what was really important at the beginning was, once again, this establishment of trust. There was so much mistrust, um, particularly the Freedmen's Bureau had really uh, absconded with uh, many, many uh, fortunes of, of black people uh, during the Reconstruction. And uh, so any kind of similar organization was met with a lot of, a lot of distrust. And so people like Dr. Moore, was, their moral character was much like uh, the capital of the company. In fact, it was almost as important, and he himself uh, regularly said that if the company didn't have the capital to pay on a on a claim, he himself would pay it, and he did on numerous occasions until they were solved. I know he came up with forty dollars in one place. They absolutely, I think it was the first case they had to pay off. As a matter of fact, if mm-hmm. I remember reading, uh, and that was actually because the blue plate came through town. It was one of, uh, well, that's, that was actually, that was not the initial claim, but, but the company definitely met with, with some uh, difficulty when the last pandemic that rolled through this country rolled through North Carolina. All of these organizations were tested at that time that he was well, uh, a founder of. 
And one thing we we historians need to remind us of, and you're one of the ones who's reminding us, is that the the really worst period. In fact, I remember reading a book one time that there was a an account of uh, African American history in this period, and up through uh, the first half of the uh, of the twentieth century. And the word nadir, n a d i r, was used. It was the it was the, the mm-hmm. bottom, the worst time in terms of place of the black community in in America and uh, it was uh but but what we see here with what uh, Dr. Moore is doing is is creating a a a, a parallel or a separate community that uh where black people can excel at what they do does that sound right to you Absolutely and and specifically during the pandemic uh Lincoln Hospital actually really uh solidified its place in in society and on both sides of town because many of the white hospitals were overburdened. And so much of the nursing that was done in the white community was done by black nurses that came from Lincoln Hospital. And their professionalism and their capability and their hard hard work was very much uh, uh, met with very much gratitude. And uh, so the, the profile of Lincoln Hospital as a teaching hospital and as a professional organization really rose in the eyes of all of the community because they were a true asset at that time. And he used that moment. I mean, I, I don't think that was deliberate, but he, he understood the, the opportunity of that moment to, uh, to equalize things a bit as, as the pandemic did not uh, discriminate, neither did his nurses. And so that was a, a really beautiful moment in the community that I think uh, healed a lot of things at that moment anyway. This is one of those questions that I, I shouldn't ask, but uh, of the things that he exceeded at founding the drug companies, uh, I'm certain that the answer to this is really his, his career as a doctor, but of the other things that he did, uh, founding the drug companies, working with North Carolina Mutual Life, uh, founding the, the hospital, uh, working with the, uh, the, uh, the colored library, uh, and, and finally, something that we did mention earlier, the Rosenwald schools. And so which do you think that he was most proud of? Well, you know, he always wanted to be a teacher. And even when he got to Shaw, uh, you know, for the first, uh, as he arrived at Shaw, he really expected himself to uh, get a teaching, a higher teaching degree and teach at the college level. He had always wanted to be a teacher from the time he was probably four or five years old. And so they persuaded him to, to go into medicine, which is testament to his intellect, but it was really not his first love. And so once he was able to uh, make all of this, uh, you know, infrastructure happen in Durham Taytay, he turned in the last chapter of his life firmly to education. And uh, the Rosenwald uh, uh, Fund became a thing that was, possible for black schools to to uh, tap into, but you had to know how to apply, and then you had to know how to, um, you know, they would give you a plan, and they would give you um, materials, but then you had to build the schools yourself. So he basically put together teams that would go out into the community, um, raise whatever they needed to raise from people as the matching grant, because they had to raise a certain amount of money in order to, you know, be able to apply. And then once they got the, the school, then uh, had people go out and help uh, implement the blueprints of, of the design. And so he really kind of made a almost a Rosenwald factory in, in the sense that he really uh, uh, 
mobilized people and organized people to benefit their own communities. And in that sense, then they felt ownership with that school and therefore they took care of that school. They were proud of that school. And, and still to this day, I think he, he was able to build more Rosenwald schools in North Carolina than in any other state. And, uh, and there are echoes for generations from that work. Um, generations of, of children received uh, educations in those schools, and many are still standing today. And not being used to schools, but I can remember uh, sort of visiting a Rosenwald school in eastern North Carolina sometime in the past. I'm afraid it, the memory is indistinct, but I, uh, so a friend of mine and I were somewhere in eastern North Carolina, and he pointed it out. He he knew about it and so on. So it, he, he extended his... Uh, contributions to the state beyond the city of Durham and to the, the rural parts of North Carolina for whom the Rosenwald schools were designed. We need to take another break here, and then we have the, the last quarter of the program to do. Uh, and uh, my book uh, of uh, interviews, and I'm speaking tongue-in-cheek now, Blake, says that at this point I should say if there's something we ha- haven't covered that you would like to cover, this is where... You, I should say the ball is yours and you can run with it. But uh, something I also want you to talk for a moment about is uh, is your description of uh, his relationship, or not his relationship, but I found uh, the, when you were writing about the lady, Cotty, that he married and her hair, mm. uh, that, uh, mm-hmm. that there was a certain warmth in that that only, I guess, a great-great-granddaughter could have written about. Do you mind talking about that? Not at all. Okay. We'll do that when we come back. 9.52 at WPCF. Tom Kearney and the Tom Kearney Show for this Monday night, June 22nd, 2020. Our guest tonight has been the author of a new biography of Aaron McDuffie Moore, longtime uh, leader in the African-American community, uh, doctor, educator, and founder of the uh, Durham's Black Wall Street and indeed Durham had the reputation of being there because of its successful black economic entities. Uh, her name is Blake Hill Saya. She's on the phone with us from California. Blake, if that question I asked you to talk about when, when just before we left is unfair, I, I, I'll take it back. But I just was kind of uh, a little bit taken by the description of the relationship uh, between uh, Dr. Moore and, and, and his wife, who outlived him by about 25 years, if I remember. She lived until 1950. Yes, she did. She was an extraordinary woman in her own right. Um, she was uh, uh, the ideal match for Dr. Moore. Uh, a doctor's wife at this time had to be of very sturdy stuff and also of extremely high moral character and uh, a very warm and community-minded person. She was all of those things. She was extraordinarily involved in all of the clubs and uh, charitable activities that uh, she was able to be part of, um, many of whom were the lifeblood of the hospital, of the mutual itself, um, of the community in general. Um, Many of the uh, activities, trainings for mothers, well-baby visits, uh, washing of linens, rolling bandages, uh, making of food, um, comforting of of those who have lost a relative or those who might have need childcare, all of these services were provided by wives uh, and uh, partners like uh, Cotty Moore. Um, her full name, uh, Sarah McCotty Dancy Moore. She was the niece of uh, 
Republican leader, John C. Danzi, and uh, she was very carefully educated and uh, raised to be uh, a, a young lady uh, with a lot of a future and anything she had put her mind to. Um, she was spotted in church uh, one day by Dr. Moore. Uh, she had a, a heavy braid of hair um, that went all the way down uh, her back, and she had some Native American heritage, um, and so that she had this beautiful, uh, heavy, curly, um, but very beautiful hair that she wore in a braid. And uh, Dr. Moore always said he saw that hair before he saw her. Um, a little uh, a bit of cultural background with that is that um, very often you try to get good hair in the family. Um, uh, hair and the African-American community is a deep and uh, long tradition, um, very emotional in, in many directions. Uh, still today, um, we are unpacking the issues of natural hair and uh, allowing African-American hair to be considered beautiful. Um, and nourished as a beautiful part of our society and fashion. Um, this was no different, uh, but also uh, more Caucasian-like hairstyles and substances were uh, sought after at the time. And uh, so she had this Native American hair, and that was a, a beauty, a mark of beauty that uh, was attractive to Dr. Moyen before he, he met the rest of her. He was very lucky that the rest of her was actually uh, superior, indeed, to, to that braid. But um, can, can we stop also, now? Uh, can we stop now because we've run out of time? But I want to course. thank you for what you've just said and and for having written the book and for being willing to be on our program tonight. The book is Aaron McDuffie Moore by Blake Hill Saya. It's uh, available from UNC Press and in your bookstores now. 